1: I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each episode we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, written by Steve Zalian and directed by David Fincher. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand.
2: Hello, everyone.
1: Brian Bittner. Hey, hey. And Alex Galleros. Oh, it's perfect. Yeah, why did we think
3: of that? <laughs> why did I, God.
1: You make us look bad, Brian. Okay, so before we dive in, uh, our Patreon vote for our patron exclusive episode for January uh, was finished. We did a Little Movies That Could Vote, uh, putting together a bunch of indie films that, that blew up and became hyper successful. We used a ranked voting system this time, which I think... We're, really made a difference uh, for all you voting system nerds out there and the patrons voted for little miss sunshine so our episode on little miss sunshine is available now in the beyond the screenplay patreon head over and give it a listen it's a really good episode probably when we record it in the future
0: (laughs) i can't believe you said that thing though like 30 minutes in it was crazy
1: (laughs) i know (laughs) about the sunshine and the small amounts of it anyway <laughs> so the girl with a dragon tattoo uh is so this is one of the few movies left uh for us to talk about that there was a lesson from the screenplay video made about and re-watching it i was remembering this this kind of like moment, and I think this was around the time I was getting obsessed with five act structure and like weird act structures. And I'd always loved Dragon Tattoo, and so immediately when reading about weird act structures, I was like, Dragon Tattoo—it's a weird movie. It's long, and it's not a normal story, and it ends, and then it keeps going. Uh, and so, the lesson from screenplay video is kind of breaking down the abnormal. Act structure, how there's sort of five acts. There's a quote from Fincher sort of saying they realized they couldn't take the book uh, that Steve Larson had written and fit it into three acts comfortably. So they went for this five act structure. And so it's this really weird movie where the first half our two protagonists aren't like they don't meet basically until the midpoint, but we're still tracking Lisbeth's story essentially as much as Mikkel's and it's yeah, I just remember like watching it in the theater being like swept away on this ride and not really understanding where I was going. And it's kind of a mystery movie that like you can follow and play detective, but it's also kind of a drama and this stuff has like nothing to do with the mystery at the heart of it for a very long time. And even the way the kind of detective mystery stuff pays off. Honestly it was a little bit underwhelming for me and didn't feel like it gave me that like oh yeah this was a super cool crime mystery thing but I was sucked into the world and the characters and largely because of the performances the relationship between Mikkel and Elizabeth L- I think is really fascinating and then obviously the fincherness of it all hit when I was at my my Max Fincher uh, and it's <laughs> Uh, it just, it did all the things that a good adventurism will do to me. Lots of things to talk about with this movie, where, how it compares to the book, how it compares to the Swedish movies, the franchise that could have been, that never was all these things. Um, but yeah, I'm curious to hear from you guys, your overall thoughts on Dragon Tattoo. Brian, do you want to start us off?
0: Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I love this movie. Um, I've spoken a couple times about the way that this movie was marketed and the way that the opening, the title sequence just feels like this. Like, look at this movie. It's going to like kick out. It's going to be like, what if the guy who made Seven made Batman? Which Matt Reeves later was like, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> so the first time I saw the movie, I was like, oh, OK, it's, it's a very different kind of thing. And something I haven't talked about as much is you know, there are these kind of two Finchers. There's the Fincher who made Seven and like most of Fight Club. And then there's the Fincher who made the game and the social network and Gone Girl, like these very clean cuts, kind of everything looks very pristine. And we're we're sort of being very careful about everything. Whereas a movie like Seven is really, everything's just grimy and dirty. And I love the aesthetic of Seven. And I thought this would be a movie where it's like, oh yeah, you're making another serial killer movie. So like if you're making... A movie about like college kids inventing Facebook, then sure, make do like your very clean cut thing. But then this movie wasn't that. And it was sort of like, oh no, we're we're doing a very clean, technically perfect looking movie. And then also there's the stuff you're talking about where it's not really doing the Hollywood stuff. You're like, oh, like the there's not some big exciting showdown with the antagonist. And then there's like this whole other act after that. So it's just it's a movie that's kind of hard to get into right away. I think, you know, at least it was for me. I liked it right away, but I also think it does this sort of I think about like pop songs versus, uh, you know, like a Radiohead song or a David Bowie song or whatever. Where it's like you hear a pop song, you're like that song's great, and then two months later, like I never want to hear that song again, right? <laughs> but then like there's some artists that I listen to where it's like it takes me a few weeks to get into the album, but then once I do, I'm like never sick of it. And I feel like this movie is a really good example of that, where I like liked it and immediately, but I was sort of like, I don't know. And then every time I've watched it, I've appreciated it more and more. And it's, becoming more and more a movie that I feel like I could watch, you know, I don't want to watch certain scenes all over uh, a lot, but in general, it's a movie where I just love like the aesthetic. I love the way it looks and the performances and and all that stuff. And of course the score by Trent Atticus, which we'll talk about later. Um, So yeah, very, very positive feelings about this movie, but it was definitely like a weird sort of way in where I was like, Oh, okay, this isn't quite the movie I expected. And it took me a bit to kind of come to terms with that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, that's fair. And, and I think this is kind of Fincher reaching the height of his hyper control of camera, hyper control of framing, hyper control of editing, hyper control of every everything.
3: <laughs> Snow on the ground.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah,
1: Which we'll talk about because I have lots of thoughts on that. Um, so just naming that. We'll, we'll get there. Alex, what are your thoughts on Dragon Tattoo?
3: Yeah, so I think back to when I first saw this... you know, it was it was that Christmas release, right? So it's like Sony's like we're going to be mm-hmm. subversive. This is our Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. So I think I saw it with my family. Oh no,
2: <laughs> Alex! So like, every I mean, time my parents,
3: you know, they like good movies, uh, but yeah, it was just like, oh wow, this is all the rape scenes, the revenge rape scene, some of the most intense uh, versions of those scenes I've ever seen in a mainstream Hollywood movie. Uh, so that was. A big part of the first experience was like, oh, my God, I'm here with my family and this is happening. Oh, Jesus. And and the movie was, I think, a little bit at that moment. I think maybe I was a little bit fatigued by the social network fincherness of it all. And so I was resisting a bit. And I'm like, yeah, it's all perfect. It's all so goddamn perfect. Watching it again this week. I like miss this so much, like a big budget movie, like a lot of money's in this movie. So and much it's, money. And it's just like an adult film that doesn't worry about like catering to anybody, but like pretty smart adults who can like follow lots of details and understand subtext and are going to read into little things that tell you about the characters. I was like, Whoa, what is this? It's all in one movie, the money <laughs> and the stars and the like, subtlety and the you know perfection of every shot. And I really loved it. And and I think, yeah, just this movie has aged very well for me because I think maybe at that moment I was taking for granted that we were always going to have social networks and, you know, like pretty significant budgets being given to these, you know, adult character movies. And we are so not in that world (laughs) right now. Um, unless you're talking about like limited series, you know, which Fincher went on went on to do. And it was just, it was just so, almost like a thrill watching this movie this week and just really, whoa, like this, this could happen. Like a movie could look this good and be this expensive and be this smart and kind of not give, like give a crap about doing the Hollywood structure. Like, wow. So anyway, yeah, that's, so my feelings about this movie right now are just like how exciting to get to watch this movie again and watch it with subtitles so I can understand who, like, <laughs> right. who, who in the family. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and I will say from the very first experience, uh, you know, it wasn't just the awkward family thing. It was also I do remember just loving the two main characters. I loved Mikel, I loved Lisbeth. And and it, I was like really won over by their relationship at the end of the movie. And I was really hoping for more. Like I, I, I did. The movie does feel like a part one in the way it ends. And I did. I do remember feeling like, okay, Like I didn't follow that mystery, really. I don't really quite know what happened. But those two I would watch do another mystery together, absolutely. So I'm excited for more. And here we are, you know, over 10 years later.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, you covered a lot of ground in that. And it's, I, I think setting up the trilogy, as I talked about in the video, everyone expected this to be a trilogy. And so I think a lot of the weirdness of the pacing and plotting of this is a attention to setting up a trilogy that this is self-contained kind of, but it's also a part one. And I think that's especially why we have to spend so much time with Lisbeth and setting up her arc and all the things that are going to push her through what we'll never
0: see. Hold on. Hold on. I mean, you know, Christopher Plummer Later is murdered And then Daniel Craig Has to show up And interview (laughs) the family With the help of a young woman And then the third part Of the trilogy Just came out On Netflix uh, Last month Like what are you talking about Literally As I was watching it My husband was like Wait a minute (laughs)
3: That's the same guy That's the same guy (laughs) murder mystery what maybe yeah. that's
1: what knives out three will be it'll just be a surprise dragon death 2 sequel and as as i also caught on the video you know a few months later the avengers movie came out and yeah. i feel like that really sealed the deal so this is almost like it's like a relic of a or the, the
3: of timelines it. diverged
2: yeah. Over, right? yeah i want right to be here. in the other timeline
3: <laughs> <laughs> the, multiverse. Yeah. the multiverse yeah yeah cool okay trisha
1: what about you
2: yeah The first time I saw this movie, and I've only seen it a couple times, I just remember feeling, like, lost, like, extremely (laughs) lost. (laughs) And I was like, for all the reasons that you guys have already identified, right, it's got two separate plot lines, two protagonists, essentially. Um, Although I think, you know, as you just said, Michael, like, you're expecting more change from Lisbeth in this movie. And she, like, there's, like, an inch along her arc, but she's certainly not where I assume she ends up. At the end of the the trilogy. And so I think there's, there's like so much stuffed in here that, you know, it just kind of becomes when you think back on it after seeing it only one time, you're like, snow, violence, everything dark, everybody bad, uh, everyone cold. (laughs) <laughs> um, just like and that's all you kind of remember right and uh, you know I, I'm fully with you I think that the the two central characters and their relationship ends up being the lasting takeaway but the mystery itself is like incomprehensible the first time you watch it it's <laughs> the so, first time I
3: had no mm-hmm. idea
2: holy crap <laughs> yeah. yeah it just doesn't make any sense and so uh, that was my feeling watching it again for this uh I think this is the only the second time I've seen it Um, I really appreciated it a lot more. And I was also holding on for dear life to every bit of, like, expository dialogue, (laughs) like, visual cue. I was like, I will solve this mystery, (laughs) and I will stay with it, and I will make sense, and it will be meaningful to me. And it was. Um, It was nice to... It was nice when everybody gets their comeuppance in the end. And, you know, even the last, like, mini-act three C, whatever that is. Um, or you, yeah, you point out the five act structure where Lisbeth decides to write one more wrong before she walks off into the night. Um, and I, even that, I was like, yeah, go get him. He's, he's bad over there. She's been bad all along. I, I loved all of it. Um, and so I think that it's just, yeah, sort of an interesting example of It actually isn't that unusual in its genre. Like, it's, you know, uh, an example of Scandinavian crime fiction specifically, of which I've read a little. Um, My experience is more in, like, classic Scandinavian crime fiction. Um, And then I've seen some more, like, modern adaptations and modern examples of it. They're all this densely plotted, at least the ones that I've read. (laughs) And they're all this dark and they're all this cold. There's all this much snow. And usually like everybody's sick too. Like everybody's got a cold and uh, they're all in really bad marriages. And like, it's always really bad. Um, it's like sleeting a lot. And you know, there's they can't get anywhere. And there's like a bus or a train. And it's always just like, God, I can't get up there. That's so far, it's so cold. Like that's actually all really common at least in the examples of Scandinavian crime novels that I've read uh and so i I kind of appreciate it as being like a mainstream a little bit more of a mainstream example of a very specific subgenre of crime fiction that I think is fascinating and probably deserves a lot more love from uh western readers and western viewers and so um i was I was into it more this time around as an example of that. And I also want to say I saw the sequel with Claire Foy that they made mm. um, that's based on it, – it's Hornet's Nest, I think, right?
0: Uh, Spider's Web.
2: Spider's Web. Yeah, there's yeah.
0: – So okay. not one of the Stieg Larsson novels, but one of
2: the – Oh, yeah, thank you. Okay, right. yeah, Spider's right. Web. Different insect. Yeah, yeah I was going to yeah. say.
0: <laughs> not an insect.
2: Anyway, so I saw that one with Claire <laughs> Foy. Um, and actually, I know that that one has a lot of problems, but in the moment, I was like, it's kind of doing the same thing, and it's back in the same world, and – if you just like to be immersed in like the texture and feeling of Scandinavian crime, then uh, these are really good examples uh, to kind of sink into, um, especially this one. So
3: I do want more, and we're not going to get more, so I might as well watch the Clarifoy one.
2: There
1: it's you kind go. of yeah, uh, I'm thinking in this moment too. Yeah. I yeah. will
0: also say, like, like while we're talking about other adaptations of, right. of this, there <laughs> are <laughs> other <laughs>
3: versions
1: too. So, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the the original Swedish trilogy it was three movies that all came out in two thousand nine, but then was also recut into a six part ninety minute each episode. Uh, series and uh, and it's it's really good, you know. It, it doesn't it doesn't have the budget of a Hollywood movie or anything like that. But uh, Númi Rapass is awesome, and uh, Michael Nykvist uh, who you may know, is the the guy in John Wick, who's like he's the Baba Yaga. Um, but like <laughs> yeah, um, like they're they're great, and you know, it's at least a way to to watch the entire story, and uh, and I, I really like it. Um, so I, it's it's worth checking out.
1: Yeah, well, and and read the books because I remember what you know. It's rare that I read narrative fiction, uh, I shall admit, Uh, but occasionally a movie gets me super excited about (laughs) going and reading the book. And so that's what happens. I read the original and then read the other two uh, or the first book and then the second and third. And really enjoyed them. My memory is enjoying the second one the most. It has like a weird prologue. But my the takeaway that I have vaguely in my head, this was 10 years ago, is like, oh my God, the second one would make such a cool movie. Third one's a little bit weird. And so I am curious now to see, now that I know I'm never going to get the rest of the Fincher trilogy, maybe I'll go watch the Swedish versions because now I'm not worried about it polluting my, my Fincher experience.
2: Well, I just want to say that I was surprised to like learn that we were never probably ever going to get these Fincher ones. Um, Cause at the time I think I assumed that a lack of sequels to this movie meant a lack of success financially. And so like, I didn't look up the box office numbers, but I was like, I'm sure this movie lost money. It cost $70 million to make. Um, and it was this like small ish uh, crime thing Uh, in terms of scope, right? And so I was just like, I'm sure it lost money. And I know they spent did did a ton of crazy marketing for it. But this movie did not lose money. This was very successful and critics really liked it. And so I just, it's a weird, another weird example of the studio left a lot of money on the table by not making more. And it's such an odd choice. Again, a different timeline, you Wonder how it would have gone.
3: Like I'm, I'm yeah. pretty upset about it.
2: Yeah, <laughs> like I, I am too now. Like I did to like Yeah,
3: but watching it again, and and the, once again, the feeling I had watching it again of like, I would like more movies like this, and this one made money, and you could have made two more like this, and they probably would have also made their money back. Why can't we have nice things? Can't
2: we cannot? What, what I will say,
0: <laughs> the really strange thing about the second and third stories, I'll say, is. Lisbeth and Mikael are together in those two stories, combined less than they are in the first movie, well, first one, and they're only in the first oh. one for half of it. Um, so I, I I could see like th- that doesn't mean the books aren't good. That doesn't mean the stories aren't good. I could see the studios like actually bothering to look at the second and third stories and go, wait a minute, maybe I'm not like to not have confidence that they would actually make really good standalone sequels you know um, I have no doubt that Steve Alien and David Fincher would have made really good movies uh, but I could see why it's it doesn't have the same sort of murder mystery thing that the first one does um, so it's uh, you know yes I would love to see what it was but I could see why they might have been just a little reticent to to make yeah,
1: yeah. I mean we'll we'll never know and I, I feel like What's frustrating for me is that clearly effort was spent, you know, in the let's get the Robin right and let's get the yes. like like let's, let's populate all these characters that have like two scenes in this movie that are gonna have huge roles in like the other stories that like but but alas, here we are. And yeah. I've uh made my peace with it. I've complained online in a YouTube video about it, and I've done everything I can. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Other than make the movies yourself, which I just think is lazy. Uh, oh. mm. <laughs> <laughs>
1: the so like the, the fincherness of it is I think really interesting. And I've talked in the podcast before about so quick tangent, the behind the scenes for this movie is amazing and you should watch it if you're interested in filmmaking. It's very, very educational. It's similar to social network almost like fly on the wall but like edited so that it's still entertaining but just like watch people make a movie like it's not like hey, there's an interview with the star where they're just telling you the story oh blah, 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 blah. it's like here is a documentary about people making this movie it's really great one of the things in that that i've mentioned before is the editors The whole like Video just on the editing, and you know the the insanity that is trying to edit a David Fincher film where he does a million takes and he shoots with two cameras, and so there's like a million angles for every single thing, and then within every shot, there's if there's someone in the background, you can use a different take for the background than in the foreground because everything's locked off and on a camera, and so you're choosing takes for multiple people within the same frame, all that kind of stuff. Getting to the point that you brought up, Trisha, of just like this mystery is completely unfollowable the first time uh one of the things they talk about in the editing documentary is the Lisbeth kind of putting all the pieces together in that scene toward you know in the third act or you know whatever toward the end uh, <laughs> Where when she's, she's looking the at the map yes the yeah. yeah yeah that originally that was a much longer sequence because they were trying very hard to like make sure that everyone understands that this puzzle piece fits into this thing and it wasn't working uh, and it was slow and so their takeaway was like well if it's going too slow and they're not going to get it let's just go at it the fastest pace possible and people still won't get it but at least they'll get the impression of a thing mm-hmm. and so i think there's that speaks to the sort of weird feeling i have about this movie where there are filmmaking lessons in here that are expert 10 out of 10, you can't do this any better. And then there's also examples of here's what happens when you take that too far and you take the perfectionism too far uh, and you have to uh, kind of rely on other techniques because it didn't work. Like the audience isn't getting this mystery. uh, And so you have to hit the, the gas pedal and just get through this as fast as possible. And so I think that's just another one of these things that I find fascinating about this movie is that it's not perfect. And I wouldn't say that like every single shot in this movie is exactly right and that it's telling the story in the best way possible at every moment. But there are moments where the level of craft is super high. And then there's also moments where you're watching a high level of craft uh, like band-aid over things that were missed. And so, I think it's just an interesting feeling that I have watching this movie. Where sometimes I watch a movie, I watch seven and I'm like, this movie's perfect. I love this. Don't change anything. This movie, Dragon Tattoo, is not perfect. I don't know that I want to change anything either, but I'm very aware that the Fincherism I think can is tripping itself up at times and relying on itself to then recover and try to get out of it at the same time.
0: Yeah, I mean, j- I'll quickly because I don't want to. I want to talk about the movie itself and not <laughs> talk about like yeah. these sort of like meta things, right? But like, I will say that something I've noticed, especially in like latter day Fincher, is like kind of a lack of emotion a lot of the time. Is is like I'm appreciating things and I'm and I'm entertained by it, but I I'm not getting like something like Benjamin Button, you know, those like relationships, right? Where you're just like really feeling these people being together or the scene between Morgan Freeman and Gwyneth Paltrow and seven where they're talking about like, is the world worth living? in. it's a little, there's a little bit of like surface level to a lot of the later movies where I'm just sort of like seeing things happen. And I might be a little emotional at times and I might get to like, kind of like feel a scene or feel a relationship, but it feels, I I've felt a little bit of, we're spending so much time on like the technical stuff and making sure you've like information is being communicated that I'm then not like getting the that sort of like gut feeling that I want out of out of just a relationship between people. And that works for a movie like Gone Girl or Social Network. Right. But in in a movie like this, it feels like I don't know. Do I want a little bit more? Um, do I want to feel the relationships a little bit more than I am?
2: Well, and this brings me to a question that I have for those that have seen and read uh, the other versions of this, the original version, the novel and, and the longer form adaptation, the Swedish adaptation, which is at what point do you have too much for a movie? Like, mm-hmm. does this cross the threshold of too much for one movie? Um, because it is even the best writers and directors in the world, the emotionality that you're talking about, Brian, is really hard to capture if you don't have the time. And if the character web is really big, mm-hmm. which both of those things are true. There's an insane character web here. There's the mystery piece, and then there's Elizabeth's entire life, and um, it's just like... The libel subplot. Oh, yeah, the libel <laughs> subplot. <laughs> <laughs>
3: right,
2: and, and I'm You know, I think there's a reason why I've said this before, but it's like short stories are actually the prose form that is closest to the feature film Mm -hmm. where you can sink into the short story. It's usually a small enough character web, you know, a bite sized enough plot. Um, And that's how you can kind of adapt without having to to aggressively cut like plot lines, entire characters, things like that. Or like 250
0: page books or something like that. Like books that are just on the shorter side. Novellas. Yeah, Yeah, exactly.
2: So I'm very curious, like, does this cross that threshold for you guys? Is there the longer form versions of the story? I mean, you touched on this earlier, whether they're preferable, but like should Fincher have made a mini series (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) or a limited series of this?
1: Yeah, watching it this time, honestly, it did crossover for me, where, like, once it got to that fifth act of, like, and now we're going to start Lisbeth's story, where she's going to yeah. take down Vernish from it. Like, wow, okay. Like, I just saw Avatar, and Avatar was long, but it, like, felt different <laughs> than this. This is, like... Yeah. We are like long and I enjoy it, but it's long. I think what surprised me, my memory of reading the book is vague, but my reading the book, my memory of it was like, oh, wow, they got most of like the important stuff in here. There are a couple like notable things. And like while Mikel is staying on the island, he like starts up a romantic Relationship with, with Cecilia, one of the bangers. And so, like, there's like a little that
0: romantic subplot that yeah. do we need Ooh. a third relationship for that Mika? would have been a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: But yeah, watching it this time, I was like, no, this this should have been a limited series. And I think it's interesting that basically right after this, Fincher went over to Netflix and started working with Netflix to do limited series House of Cards and then Mindhunter. Um, because I think I could feel this wanting to have a different outlet and watching it in 2023 that revealed itself to me even more clearly If this. Now this would be something different and maybe better because I think this probably is too much for a single movie was was my feeling.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. I felt that as well, Michael. I, I was thinking like, yeah, in this year, this would be a limited series. However, part of the the we're talking about that uh, I also like really admired from the context of 2023 was just the amazing efficiency of his filmmaking. Because we do have a lot of limited series that go the other direction, where it's like, well, we got to pad out ten episodes, so let's like really take our time. And it, it it was just so like refreshing and rewarding to see a scene happen where it's like minimum viable product of like a scene. <laughs> But it's good. And like and like every every like split second of that scene is exactly the right split second to communicate what it needs to be communicated. Now it's over. And we're on. Um, and there's something that's really satisfying about that as well. And I just I yeah, I, I think this movie straddles this line and I agree probably crosses it into like not everything lands in this movie the way it should because it shouldn't be a movie. But also what a thrill to, to see like beautifully efficient filmmaking uh, doing a lot very quickly uh, is something that I, I, I do find I miss sometimes watching really good limited series that, 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 know they have infinite time basically,
0: and can kind of just meander.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. Um, Cause watch it rewatching the Swedish film, but I think it was my first time watching the extended, like the three hour cut, you know, it's only 20 minutes longer than the American film, but also Fincher talked a lot about with this movie, how he wanted to extend the scenes as much as possible. Like really make you lean forward. Like, Oh, what's behind that door. We're going to walk up to the door. We're, so I think that there are, there's like a lot of efficient stuff happening. And then there's like sequences driving up to the house. Um, there's a great, I think it's SceneCraft craft is the YouTube channel, which compares the way that the, the two film versions are done and how Fincher just like really milks the like uh, Christopher Plummer is talking about, you know, these half were sent by Harriet, these half were sent. And it's like you're looking and you don't see the thing right away. And the Swedish film is just like, here's some flowers. We're going to tell you what they are now. And like, that's not bad. It's just different. So it's like Fincher got really efficient with some stuff, but then really slow with other things. So it pacing wise, it sort of changes what you have time for. Um So so it was interesting to see like so many more subplots happening in a version that was only 20 minutes longer, but that was because we were kind of spending equal amount of time on things. So you actually have, you actually have some scenes with Venerstrom and they're sort of like leaning into like the antagonist. One of Venerstrom's guys is a mole at Millennium. The biggest change that this movie makes from, from both the book and the original um, movie is Mikhail went to the the vanguard estate when he was a kid and Harriet was like his babysitter. Like, oh, <laughs> that's like, such, right.
1: oh, yeah. I forgot
0: about that. <laughs> he has like a and relationship
3: like, <laughs> with Harriet.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and he like remembers things about that time and stuff, wow, which is guys. like, right. I don't know that that is necessary. Right. It's, it's like, it, I'm sure it feels very strange if you've, you know, engaged with either of those original things to not see that in the American version, but I don't know necessarily that it adds to the story. Right. Um, but one thing I did really like about the Swedish version is there's a lot more sleuthing with Mikael and Elizabeth. Like once they team up, they're like going here and like interviewing this person and driving around and looking for, I was like, yeah, I want to see this kind of, I guess, like Watson and Watson, uh, you know, pairing (laughs) (laughs) where they're just like going around and, and doing stuff. Um, but just in general, it made me think about what when do I think something should be a movie versus a series, not just time, how long is the thing, right? But I was thinking like when Roma and The Irishman came out within like a year of each other, they're both they're both very long and they were both things that we were all watching at home unless you were lucky enough to go see them in a theater, right? And I just thought like The Irishman is four hours long and it takes place over decades and we have like a lot of characters and stuff that feels like something where i could take a break between an episode and kind of gather my thoughts and wait for next week or or even just go you know grab a snack and come back and watch the next episode whereas roma i feel like if you're not with uh cleo like for the entire ride then the payoff at the end is not it's not there, you know. If you, even if you just watch half that movie and watch the next half, I feel like it. it you need to kind of sit there and engage with this thing for the whole time. Um, so I was thinking like focused character pieces versus big. Ensemble pieces takes a lot of time. And that doesn't mean you can't do it right. Babylon recently, like that could have been a series. but at the same time, I had a blast watching, spending three hours in the theater watching that movie. Um, but I feel like Gone Girl and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo are like really just pushing the limits. You know, if Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is a movie about catching this killer, what does Lisbeth's first half of the movie have to do with that. If it's a movie about Lisbeth, what does Mikael's first half of the movie have to do with that, right? So it's sort of trying to do all these things at once. And in a limited series, it's like you could have a Mikael episode. You could have a Lisbeth episode. You could have an episode that takes place in the 60s where you like are hanging out with all these people. And at the end... That's when it's revealed who did it or whatever, you know, you could you have you just like spend so much more time with these characters and stuff. And of course, that's what you can do in a book, in a book, in a page. You can tell someone's life story. And in a movie, you get like half a page of dialogue if you're lucky to be like, we got to tell you some stuff about this character then we got to move on with the plot. Right. Um, so it's just, it's very interesting to see, uh, to see those things, but I am appreciating at least that so many that like limited series are a thing. Now miniseries was like a bad word in the nineties, you know, right. now it's like, we can do that. We can take, you know, or like game of thrones, we can adapt a book into a 10 episode season. So I like that. We, I like that we're getting more experimental with this stuff now.
2: Yeah. And to both your points, like, you know, gone girl, is a very efficient movie also, and we have an episode on that. And then I think on that episode, I mentioned that I watched Sharp Objects, which is Gillian mm. Flynn's other novel, which they made into a limited series, and right. it is way too long. Like, so <laughs> much of it, you know, they they took all the time in the world that they needed to tell that story, and it's just, it, it there's not enough plot to, like, sustain it, and the character relationships are interesting, but It just isn't the same as like seeing it all crammed in. And so, yeah, I think I don't like I don't have an answer, but I do think it's an interesting open question. And I just think it's interesting that it seems like now in 2023, the default is to go to TV instead of back when this was made and earlier, the default was to go to film, right? Because that's where the money is. So the default is cram it into a movie. We'll spend $70 million making it, but we'll still make our money back on it, which is wild. And that was just like the gut reaction from the studio at the time. Whereas now the gut reaction is totally the opposite direction. And I wonder if there should be a gut direction either way. You know what I mean? Like, if in a perfect world we could evaluate every single piece of what I mean is like every story on its own merit and just look at what form it wants to take
3: absolutely and I think we need to be more okay with like the four episode limited series you know like like if that's all it needs that's all it needs and it's okay and if you're on if you're Netflix or HBO it's like it's fine just just do four (laughs) or or three even um if if it's calling for that and it's not a movie but it's not also like a 10 episode arc I I know I just want to like second your your thoughts Brian about both Roma and the Irishman I saw both of them in theaters and Mm. watching Roma in theaters is like I would never watch this at home I want to watch this only in the theater in this incredibly focused way the Irishman was like, I wish I was at home so I could like stop watching this movie for a minute and like go do something else and like pee. And um, so it's yeah, it's it's interesting how it's not just about even length. It's about content and what content within that length, what kind of experience it is calling for. Is it calling for like an overtime experience or a focused all at once emotional arc you have to just sit through in order to right. feel
1: yeah, 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 a, it's interesting, and I, I feel like we still want to, at some point, talk about Andor, maybe, because I
3: feel like that circles around I've a lot been of this. I've about Andor a lot as we've mm. been saying this. Uh-huh.
2: <laughs> We're just going to keep mentioning it on every episode and then never right. doing it.
3: <laughs> Everybody wants us to talk about
1: it. We've done this with Star Wars before. We tease it for, like, a year or two, and then we'll <laughs> give the people what they want.
0: And people are like, oh, Andor, that show from six years ago, <laughs> you're talking about it now? Yeah. I mean, at some point, there'll be a season two.
1: Andor takes me to Stellan Skarsgård, which brings me back there to here, which is, and it was funny watching this this time, thinking about Michael in the theater 12 years ago, whatever it was, uh, not knowing immediately that, of course, Stellan Skarsgård is the yeah. bad guy. Because like, this
3: time <laughs> of, like, of course he's the bad guy. Look at him. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> you cast Stellan Skarsgård. That's what you're doing. you do. I mean, so him as a as like one of the antagonists is an interesting character and one of our patrons outlaw uh brought up the the kind of fascinating moment where at the end when stellan skarsgård essentially catches michael the way he lures him into his trap right as he doesn't even calls this out it's like the fear of offending someone is Mm -hmm. like scarier than the fear of Pain or something like that, uh, but for some reason it is, and so yeah, he just invites him in, invites Mikhail in for a drink, and he comes in, and it's there's something so true about that weird human psychology, and I feel like that's what's really fascinating to me about this character that we don't get to really know until that you know torture sequence with Daniel Craig, like, but that whole little sequence really does talk about a lot about just like the psychology of so many things and the weird humanness of it and i just love the way both of those characters play that scene and i I don't know it's one of those scenes that i almost forget is in the movie because there's so many other things in the movie and i feel like this is a moment kind of like you were calling out brian of there are sequences where fincher takes his time and i feel like this is one of those sequences that's like we're gonna now we're here and now we're going to be doing this for a little while But it's really gripping and like disturbing, but like darkly fascinating, and like tickles that weird little like slightly perverse part of my brain that Fincher somehow knows how to get into. Uh, So anyway, so I'm curious to hear, yeah, what you guys make of that character, that sequence, and sort of those aspects of psychology and how cathartic it is when Lisbeth like slaps him across the face with the golf. (laughs) I'm like, ah, so good.
0: Yes. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, in Mikael's defense, he has, if he is pretty sure Martin is the one who did it, he has two options: one, run for his life, in which case Martin knows he knows; or two, try to play dumb and say I was just out for a walk and I tripped, and maybe I can get out of here and go get the cops and whatever. Right. But so it's like I like that monologue that that um, that Martin has, but I do feel like. If, if you're caught bumbling down a hill trying to get away from the Outside house, of a
2: killer's house.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like you either just run into the cold night and hope you don't get shot in the back or you try to play it off. And I feel like neither option is great.
1: But look what happens when you don't try to run away into the night. Like, <laughs> yeah. gotta try to run away into you the night. He didn't know about the torch He didn't know runner. that then.
0: He hadn't yeah. seen the Swedish version. Yeah, but still.
3: <laughs> that was his mistake. It yeah. came out before this. Well, you know, something that that scene reminds me of too is just uh, Mikkel's character and and how much fun it was to watch Daniel Craig in this role after seeing him as Bond. And the way Mikkel's character is both charming and attractive but also is a little bit bumbling and a little bit mm-hmm. kind of awkward about certain things and and maybe not always this kind of uh hollywood version of masculinity like he gets afraid and he gets freaked out and in a lot of ways lisbeth is the one who's kind of like a steadier rock for him during a lot of the ordeal in the second half of the movie um and i just really I really appreciate like a male protagonist like that embodied by a Daniel Craig uh, actor and it's fun in that sequence watching him be a normal human not a hollywood movie human but like how I would be. <laughs> if you know, I was caught on that I would probably do exactly what he did. I would be totally terrible at hiding how nervous I was. I would obviously have the knife in my pocket and not be good at hiding that either. Um and I think it's That's part of what makes you know his relationship with Elizabeth so interesting, and also just why I like these two characters is because he is he's he's a different kind of protagonist than the like yeah I don't know steely cool confident I'm 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 an even match for a Martin Vanger he's not he's he's a normal person who is smart and doing his best but he's not superhuman yeah
2: I think there are a couple of things. Uh, in that scene that really stand out to me as just really ratcheting up the tension in an effective way. And, and one of them is that, you know, we as the audience have a lot more information than the characters do. Like, we know that Mikkel, Mikkel has been snooping around the house. He's seen a lot of stuff. He's pretty sure Martin is the guy he doesn't know for sure. So we kind of understand, like he does basically know, but he hasn't found like an actual smoking gun or like, yeah, he didn't find the torture room. Like he didn't actually get what he needed to come out of there and be like, you know, fully ready to take him on kind of thing Um, or run away screaming into the night. But we know because we've been, you know, the intercutting with Lisbeth in the archive we know that Martin is the guy for sure. And so, you know, and then you have Martin coming back. He doesn't let on necessarily. So we're, as the audience, are in a privileged position of basically, like, holding all the characters at once um, in a way that oh, they're not sure of each other. So I think that that helps. Now, the actual confrontation, I think, is helped in a number of ways, in terms of the tension. One of which is that the movie has taken a lot of care to like put us into that setting, which is incredibly isolated. So like, we know that even on the estate, Martin's house is like up on that hill. It's quite a walk. We know it's got that, you know, sterile vibe and there's just darkness and trees on the outside of the house. There's no one that's going to come to help. Um, although it's interesting that we do know Elizabeth is, like, going to be able to figure it out, right? Martin is so sure that no one will come to help, but we know that Elizabeth is coming, which I also think is interesting um, as a confrontation unfolds. But yeah. the isolated part of the location, I think, is a huge part of it. And as it goes along, you know, Martin pulls a gun on Mikkel and then starts taking him downstairs and downstairs, and we're like, oh, this is going to be worse and worse and worse. Again, the location aspect of it does a whole lot to increase the feeling of dread. And so once they're down in that torture room, it doesn't matter what Martin says. Like, and actually the longer he talks, I mean, I do think it's interesting and it's all really well-written, but they're surrounded by torture instruments. <laughs> and and Mikhail is very helpless.
0: Martin's like, I can explain. <laughs> it's not what it looks like.
2: <laughs> so it's the kind of situation where... The tension is just from the situation, the setting, the helplessness, the characters, and then the longer you draw it out, it's like stretching that rubber band, right? Tighter and tighter and tighter. And so I do think think Martin's psychology is interesting and like, you know, next levels of messed up to American (laughs) readers (laughs) (laughs) in a way that probably sticks with you if you're not, if you don't read a lot of this kind of like really dark (laughs) serial killer stuff. So I do think, and it's, you know, like I said, the dialogue's very well written and well delivered by the actors. But it doesn't matter so much as the setup, I think, that goes into that final dialogue scene. And actually, it reminds me a lot of, I do think it's one of the standout scenes in the movie. It reminds me a lot of um, the scene earlier where Mikhail and Lisbeth meet for the first time where he shows up at her apartment with coffee. And again, the setup work is doing all the work of the scene for us in so many ways because we know both of these characters. We know what they've just gone through. We know exactly what they want and who they are. And the setup work is what's pouring into that dialogue sequence. The characters have never met each other before or never, you know, in the case of the the scene in the torture room, They've never met each other clearly or honestly before. And so there's this sort of thrill of a first meeting to both of these scenes. And I think that the one between Mikkel and and Lisbeth is also outstanding in its dialogue and the way that the characters lay their cards on the table. Um, But a lot of it, the work is not being done so much in the scene. It's relying on the scaffolding around it.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. I'm glad you brought up the thing, so I want to talk about the two. The, but the, there's also the fact that within the Martin torture scene, you know, we're sort of assuming he's the one. He killed his sister, mm-hmm. but he's not. And like we're getting that revelation. And so there's still like those there's layers unfolding. To yeah, still <laughs> a little bit to go. Um, and and yeah, I'm glad you called out just like the locale of that house because like the set decoration, the art design of this movie is insane, and just the the idea of he's he's in this house. It's removed, like he's still hiding, but there's glass everywhere. Like he has nothing to hide. Like there's a lot of interesting layers happening in the set that kind of match the the twisted psychology underneath. Turns
2: out it's actually the parasite house. <laughs>
3: Well, it's interesting because the movie and this is I, you know, to be honest, don't know a lot about the culture cultural context for this. But there's a lot made in the movie of Sweden and Swedish history and yeah. relationship to Nazism. And, and the, the, I think there's a symbol there of look at our like Ikea Swedish, like clean <laughs> perfection. Yeah. Oh, wait, down in the basement, there's some really dark, <laughs> some really dark stuff. <laughs> um and and the movie does seem and i I assume the series as a whole is engaging with uh, trying to reckon with some of the darker aspects of swedish history and culture um and and i can
0: i can see it in that set design right there's a lot about the sort of swedish political system and like what's okay and what's not okay and sort of like the third story is is part of it is just elizabeth trying to like prove that she's not you know, disturbed basically. And, and some of that is, is she lying about her past? And some of it is like, do we as a society like this kind of behavior and is it okay? And, you know, so there's a lot of that, that kind of thematic content, you know, and another thing that the book and the original movie do is Mikhail is Swedish. <laughs> Period. Right. Accents are a thing uh, that I have talked about before. And boy, oh boy, is this a movie to talk about it with. Um, uh, I want to come back to the stuff we we're talking about. But like while we're talking about th- this movie's respect for Sweden, uh, it's like it's so strange. My, my thing is always just like be consistent with whatever your choice is. Right. So if it's Valkyrie or something, you're like, look, we're all German, but we're going to speak English. Like, OK, whatever. But this is like we're all Swedish characters. Some of us are Swedish actors. Some of us are American and English actors doing varying degrees of Swedish accents. There's like a, a um, Bierman is Dutch, I think. And I assume he's not trying to do a Swedish accent. I don't know because I can't tell, you know, but like, tell us people from there. And then Daniel <laughs> Craig is just Daniel Craig, like oh, no yeah. attempt at all. And you know, is a, is no attempt better than a bad attempt? Hashtag Kevin Costner. I don't know. It's just the lack of consistency that like, when you are that much of a a perfectionist as Fincher is, it's like, how is that just completely glossed over? Like, like, how are you not hiring a dialogue coach or, or sorry, a a dialect coach um, to, to, to deal with this? And you're just being like, yep, just one of our, one of our characters, no Swedish accent, the end.
3: Well, and but I do wonder because he's a perfectionist like if that's a choice in in some ways as a bridge to American audiences you know to have to have a Daniel Craig protagonist at the center of the movie as the most like normal guy does it help to not have to listen to him like strain to do like an authentic accent and just get to be Daniel Craig um is is there a barrier that's put up if if he is, like Rooney Mara doing, trying to do kind of a, like a strict accent the whole movie. Elizabeth feels a bit more alien, a little bit more exotic to us. But do we need him as the like normal Joe for the American audience to be normal to Americans, which would, which would not ha- be having an accent like that?
0: But everything else we've said we like about this movie is that it's not trying to cater to an audience. It's trying to just be what it is. <laughs> I also just hate when... Actors are. Like I didn't know yeah.
1: notice any of this. Like, it never. <laughs> I would never would have been like, oh yeah, something was wrong with the accent, or like, should did he have an accent? I don't know. Like, until you finished your sentence earlier, Brian, I wasn't sure if you were going to say Daniel Craig nailed his accent or didn't have one. <laughs> so, like, I that's also a part of the audience in the world. Uh,
0: mm-hmm. This is all subliminal, basically. Yeah, but like Swedish listeners, we some of us understand (laughs) like you're right yeah of course when you're from the culture that
3: is of course yeah it's like of course it's like i mean i our friend daniel you know is from the the like neighborhood near like or maybe the actual same neighborhood as like mayor of east town was supposed to take place in and he's just like i can't watch it because like everybody's trying to do the accent from that part of town and it's just like painful but for the rest of us, it's like, this is great. Um, so, it, yeah, it, it's it's hard when you're from that part of the world and accents are divergent or non-existent.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, I don't know, it's one of those somewhat unsolvable problems. If you if you have to have a Daniel Craig in your movie to get it made, et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah, blah.
0: Um, but he likes doing accents in Murder Mysteries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. We do know that.
1: Yeah, yeah. But yeah, just really quickly going back to the the kind of midpoint scene that you brought up, Trisha, show where Blankvist finally meets Salander, I, watching it this time, I was really impressed by how like just right it feels like it, it navigates the situation because there's a lot of ways it could be, go really wrong. OK, so basically like not quite breaking in but he's pushing his way into her space she has someone over like it's a huge invasion of privacy comma but we know that lisbeth has sort of like invaded his privacy comma but that doesn't make it okay comma but he has sandwiches his demeanor is like like there's just like i feel like enough of these balancing things where he's upset but respectful and kind of holding those two things and she's upset, but not like threatened. And we've seen like, you know, we you know she has her taser and she could take him out as we've seen her do very effectively. Uh, so I don't know. There's just like, as that scene began, I was like, Oh, how, wait, how are they doing this? But somehow by the end, I, I buy where it's ended up in this kind of first step in forging a relationship where, uh, there's tension, but respect She's super smart. He's kind of an idiot, but knows how to navigate things. I don't know. Just all of that somehow sets that relationship stage in a way that I found really impressive.
2: The line I appreciated this time, and it's it's just like pure exposition, but it works really well, um, is the one where he goes, it's me, the person you know better than my family members do, right? That's an important reminder because the last time, like, they're... Weird relationship where she actually does know everything about him and exactly who he is. Because the thing is, when he shows up at the door, you're like, danger, danger. Here's, like, a, a someone you've never met before pushing his way into your apartment. Just tase him right now. Like, but then quickly we get that reminder of, like, no, she knows exactly who he is and his exact relationships with everybody and everything. It's, again, it's just... It's a great example of a line of characters telling characters something that they both know and actually something the audience already knows too, (laughs) but is an incredibly salient piece of information in order to make this scene play. And so it works really well to drop it in there right at the beginning. And it's like, oh, hang on. They do know each other in a weird way. And then also, yeah, you're absolutely right in that the performances are there, Um, his like general urgency, I think is really key where he's like, I really need to talk to you about this right now. And like, if you don't want to hear about it, you never have to see me again. But like if he played it any more politely, you know, the scene just diffuses and she just goes, okay, go away. I'll never talk to you again. Um, But I think again, going into all of the scenes leading up to this one and the one that, uh, The one that, the line that got me this time is, you know, he's like, I'm going, you're going to help me catch a killer of women. And you're just like, oh yeah, of course she is. (laughs) And, and he doesn't know what she's just been through, but we do. And there's this immediate, like, these two are going to work together. He knows for some reason, the exact right thing to say to her about like, we're going to catch a really, really, really bad dude. Um... And this is relevant to you personally, even though he couldn't possibly know that. Uh, I don't know. It all just works really well.
1: Yeah. I feel like her shirt also does a lot of work. yeah. Cut oh, the yeah. yeah. It's, right. the, yeah. it's wonderful. F- costume you, design F- there. F- yeah. That's, yeah. yeah.
3: But it, I think it's also great because it rolls right into him showing her the evidence. We get that moment where she, we do get the hint of her photographic memory. And we get the thrill of the Sherlock... Watson, especially I'm thinking of like Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock too. Of like, this person's a little bit superhuman, and they can remember everything right away. She's already ten steps ahead of him. She's already on to the next thing, and that's just like so much fun to watch. And and immediately I'm I'm bought into this duo because I want to watch them do this.
1: Yes, yeah, I feel like I'm bought in, and then like maybe one of my favorite moments ever just makes it sweeter where he's like you know don't you want to take a look at this she's like no i got it and he's like please and like pushes it and she grabs it and then sets it on the table she's walking away like it's such a great moment of characterization and like their dynamic and yeah that's love it so much
0: i also get such a um Uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg from social network moment when he's she's like I'm reading your notes and he goes they're encrypted and she goes please just like the little (laughs) she gives him like she turns into Jesse Eisenberg for like one that (laughs) that kind of look also speaking of shirts this idea that um, with uh, plague her hacker friend. He's wearing a nine-inch
2: nails shirt. I was just like, "Are you are you for real, everybody?" I just
0: I just want to say this idea that like nine-inch nails fans are just overweight dudes yeah. who live in like stinky <laughs> apartments with beards and wear black t-shirts. It's just spot on. <laughs> Perfect. Well, so
1: yeah, there's so much to, to to talk about. Why don't we move to lessons and continue the conversation in the context of lessons? So. A reminder before we get get into lessons that our Patreon exclusive episode uh, is on Little Miss Sunshine uh, over on our Beyond Screenplay Patreon. So what lessons are we going to take away from The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo?
3: Alex, do you want to start us off? Sure. Probably just going to wrap up by saying the same thing I've been kind of hinting at the whole time, which is I love the two main characters in this movie. And I think it's a good lesson in... I can still like a mystery movie if I don't understand the mystery at all. If the detectives are great characters and have a great relationship, because, you know, when I think about, yeah, I mean, any, any, any great murder mystery story, you know, it's fun when the mystery itself is followable and I am uh, trying to solve it myself and on the edge of my seat about how it's going to get resolved. But the really memorable ones are always, you know, you got the Benoit Blanc or you just you have you have the shirt the come about Sherlock, like you're, you're not really there for the plot or for the details of the plot. You're there for the the character who is in of themselves maybe going on a character arc or has serious issues or is grappling with something in their own lives as they are solving this mystery that's what you're kind of really there for um and, and the sums of the the genre is there to hook you for an interesting character story about a person who likes to solve mysteries or investigate and and i just think this is a great example of a movie where once again the first time i watched it i really couldn't tell you who was who in that family or what exactly had happened. But I like liked the movie and wanted another movie because of those two leads. Uh, So I just think it's a good lesson when you're, if you want to write a mystery or kind of twisty plot, heavy detective story, like ultimately what really matters is your detective, you know, the great if I can follow your murder mystery and that's really engrossing too, but doesn't really matter if I don't like, find your detective really engrossing and interesting just in and of themselves?
2: Well, you're exactly speaking to my lesson too, Alex, which has to do with pushing characters, especially, but like lots of things to extremes. right? I think this movie is a really good lesson in that because when you're working in a a, a genre that can be formulaic, the way to make a standout example of that genre is to turn up the volume on certain aspects of it. And so even just in the character design, as you're pointing out, when you look at Lisbeth Salander, you're looking at an extreme personality, right? So if she was like, if you had two Daniel Craig looking people, dudes, right in in a room together they're they're just there's nothing interesting about that dynamic there's nothing interesting about them visually or sort of um yeah just on paper right but but when the instant you see her the instant like the movie does a great job in that scene of setting her up right where he the guy's like I don't know, you don't want to meet her. I don't think clients should meet her. Like, she's that excellent researcher, but it's against policy kind of thing. Really trying to discourage him, right? There's that really great intro for her. Um, and then we see her too. So there's there's an extreme personality, somebody on the fringes of society already. Um, and then the movie does that in of uh, quite a few places where Selen Skarsgård's character, Martin, is like so much worse than your average serial killer in a lot of ways and his family is so much worse than you think like there's there's this again just has the volume turned up on it the weather the <laughs> location right They're they're not wealthy people they're super wealthy people they're not just weirdly like living on a little like mansion they're on an island there's no way off of it like Just turn the volume up on everything. And it just works really, really well to make this the memorable, memorable movie that it is. Both in terms of texture and in those character scenes too. So I think that, yeah, it's just a really great example of that. And like I said, some of the stuff in here is a little bit more familiar if you have read this kind of work before. But even so, I think there's a reason this broke through. And it's kind of the extremity of all of it uh, in so many ways.
3: On the topic of the cold i remember watching it this time i i felt how cold his cottage was when he arrived oh my gosh did such a good job of just conveying like it's too cold here and this place is not (laughs) insulated enough and there's not enough heat it's just way too cold
1: and it was against a green screen the whole thing was a set in the green screen good visual effects Well,
2: you know, we meet him in presumably Stockholm, right? Which already looks super cold to those of us, especially in L.A. (laughs) And then and then everyone is complaining that he's going to the North Pole. You're like, oh, it's it can get colder. (laughs) Okay, it can get burn, burn all the books in your cottage cold.
0: (laughs) He's going to be on the wall.
1: (laughs) So that actually kind of ties into the two sort of things I've been juggling as far as like my lessons and so your point trisha of like turning everything up to 11 i think as i was mentioning kind of at the top of the episode the filmmaking in this movie i think is really worth studying as both what to do and what too much of a good thing can potentially do but i think it's good to study because it is turned up to 11. like i feel like even the average movie goer probably watches this as like, there's something happening with the movie here, it's like with the film, <laughs> where like, you know, Dano Craig leans forward and the camera perfectly keeps his eyeline in exactly the same point because it's digitally stabilized so the camera doesn't move. The camera does not move unless the characters are moving and Fincher wants it to move and it will move precisely where it needs to go. Uh, and just like all the technology behind it. But you, so you can see knowing that someone has that level of control over things when it's working, when you're watching the movie and you're like, Oh, I'm into this. I think that's a good thing to then look at and study because it means there's some intentionality happening there. Uh, and I think there's several, there's so many like Fincher montages in this, which are great. Daniel Craig walking through, uh, the town, like the downtown, and it's like going in, looking, it goes to the balcony and there's the, like the camera's moving and the editing is happening on the actions. Just like, like grab a sequence from this movie and just watch it frame by frame by frame the and you will learn a lot. The editing, the camera absurd. framing, it's, it's absurd.
3: The confidence of some of the cuts where like some, some shots are so quick but it's exactly the frames you need to register the thing and then move on. But like the in and out point of the cut is exactly it's that, that minimal viable product or whatever. It's 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 perfect. And that takes so much time to arrive at that place for a movie this long. I mean, in the special features, those editors look like haunted. <laughs> and I'm like I understand why. <laughs>
1: yes like
2: everybody associated with this movie right
1: <laughs> yeah well, just, and like again it's just like there are people like I a scene where people are sitting and having like a conversation at dinner like they're splicing together multiple takes into a single shot multiple audio takes and like also shout out to ren Kleist, the sound designer the sound design is amazing every sound you hear in this movie was put there on purpose by someone so it's a good movie to study both, both yeah like i said what's good and what can go too far because all of it is intentional. The other thing is that you guys are mentioning was like the characters. And you mentioned this earlier, Alex, and I kind of want to circle back. But the Mikael as a protagonist that is not hyper masculine, but not not masculine. Like there is this weird zone that I feel like he occupies for me that almost no other like male characters do that I can, can think of, especially not ones that lead a movie. And I want more of that because I feel like there's, there's less feels like the bandwidth of the types of characters that we think people are comfortable watching as the leading man in a movie is uh, narrower than I feel like it should be. And so him and his relationship With the women in his life, with everyone in his life, I feel like is a really cool rendering of a person that I would love to see more of. And that's what I liked about the books, when I read the books also, uh, and what I love about the performance and and this movie and all those things. So more more interesting characters is good also do that.
0: And that is also what we get from Benoit Blanc, right? Like we get someone who is not this sort of like man's man and whatever and he is kind of there to support the the person who ends up becoming the protagonist of both of both movies you know and i think that's that's interesting too also with the sound design uh the that the first of the horrible scenes between uh, elizabeth and bierman the like floor buffer that's outside oh God, yeah it's the same note that then the score comes in on and like that's intentional <laughs> like that's how yeah. we didn't get to talk about the score a lot but it's good. It's, it's longer so than good. the movie. The soundtrack is longer than the movie because that's how much <laughs> music they wrote.
2: Yeah. And just to sort of, yeah, go back to what you guys are saying about Mikhail as a protagonist. That's the same thing with Lisbeth, right? Is that there's a, like, feminine, like, protagonist of this movie that we've seen before. And she's not that. She's, you know a full person with more nuance um, and the kind of like archetypal kind of protagonist that we're not as familiar with Um, that I think is, is the essence of what makes her fascinating, makes them fascinating um, in their relationship is that there are more conventional choices that you could have made with these characters um, that are less, you know, characters when we talk about dimensionality what we're talking about is contradiction like do they have contradictions in their characters do they espouse values they don't live by do they make contradictory choices like both like going in the opposite direction of their goals and also like bad choices human choices recognizable choices um that they themselves potentially don't understand and so There's all these things that are embedded in the characters, both of them. Uh, And I think that that's another reason they're super memorable. It's not just like the mohawk and, (laughs) you know, the motorcycle and her superpowers. Those things make her like even more iconic. But it's also the way that we see her interacting with everybody in her life, but especially Mikhail. And I think that that's really interesting. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Brian, take us home. What's your lesson? Uh yeah. Uh, Trisha mentioned the scene where we first meet Lisbeth. And I was thinking about how both Lisbeth and Mikhail are uh introduced in this movie. And you guys touched on it a little bit. I was thinking about the sort of screenwriting one oh one show don't tell kind of thing, right? And we get a lot of that with Mikhail of of just like he buys uh, a packet of marble reds and a lighter. Which like already that's like you know he doesn't have a lighter and then he like throws the packet away right and the way he is on the plane and stuff like that's really good just we're giving you the information you need to to sort of do the work yourself right but then we kind of get the opposite with the conversation with the um, with the with Frodo and um, I think Aramansky is his name uh, before Lisbeth shows up where they're just telling us what to expect but it does a lot of the work then that the scene when she shows up doesn't need to do. Cause otherwise you have to have like these shots of them kind of looking at each other, being like this, this, mm-hmm, you know what I mean? And like, we don't <laughs> want to have that, right. We want to tell the audience up front, this is a strange person to us to, you know, cause if she's showing up at Neo's door asking if he wants to go to a club or something like that. Then she's like, not strange. Right. Exactly. You're like, oh, that's okay. That's, seems normal. Follow the dragon
1: tattoo. <laughs> right,
0: exactly. Um, and, uh, so I was actually curious about, cause the, um, the Swedish film also has that scene and that YouTube video I mentioned talks about the difference between the two and the Swedish film. It's just that scene Of the two guys talking in the Fincher version, it's that scene. And then she's arriving on her motorcycle and we're cross-cutting. And then she's, you know, wiping her nose in the elevator and she's walking through the office and everyone's kind of looking at her. So it's doing both. It's kind of telling us while also showing us a little bit. But then I went back to the book out of curiosity. And I always think it's interesting when a book doesn't have dialogue, but it has a paragraph that talks about dialogue uh so the stranger by Camus, which i which i have mentioned before that i adapted has a lot of paragraphs about like a conversation that was had but it doesn't actually have lines of dialogue it's just like we talked about this and they said this so the passage from the book is after Frodo is basically like no i want to i, I want to meet her um it says uh Aramansky sighed and shifted his gaze to the conservatively dressed guest with the thick glasses. Dirk Froda, a lawyer, had insisted on meeting and being able to ask questions of the employee who prepared the report. Aramansky had done all he civilly could to prevent the meeting taking place, saying that Salander had a cold, was away, or was swamped with other work. The lawyer replied calmly that it made no difference, the matter was not urgent, and he could easily wait a couple of days. At last, there was no way to avoid bringing them together. Now Froda, who seemed to be in his late 60s, was looking at Lisbeth Salander with evident fascination fascination. fascination. Salander glowered back with an expression that did not indicate any warm feelings. So I think it's a really interesting, you could easily just cut that paragraph out of both adaptations because it's just a paragraph about she showed up, right? So you could be like, she shows up, and again, we get looks from people, and and that's how we do the work. But to turn that, and again, the Swedish film is the one that originally did it, to turn that into a conversation because you're you're recognizing the conflict in that paragraph, right? It's hey, we'll do you, no, she's saying, no, but this, but what about this? Uh, so to give us a scene that in and of itself is entertaining and has some conflict and it's just like a cool scene to watch, but then also does the character work so that when Elizabeth shows up, we don't need to tell the audience all this stuff because we just told them. That's a really cool. It's not show don't tell. It's tell so that you don't have to show it later, but do it in a way that is entertaining. That makes an entertaining scene in and of itself, and sort of get some work out of the way so that the scene can just be what the scene is when it's when it happens. So and it is it is the titular character so. We do want a bit of a build-up
3: to meeting her. A will build-up. I love that
1: scene, and that also reminds me the other, perhaps the most critical lesson to take away. It's show me the back of people's heads. This movie has so many cool shots yeah. of the back of Elizabeth's head, and I just, like, every time, I'm just like, yeah, I don't know why, but yes, like, what is she thinking? Like, I want to know what's happening inside of that head, but you're not telling me. I feel like... It's a shot that we need more of and is underutilized. So going down the escalator and to, yeah, just the back of people's heads, do it.
0: In in the third Swedish movie, um, we have not seen her in like full Lisbeth Garb in quite a while. And then like for the final act of that movie, she puts it on and you, you're you introduced to seeing the back of her head with like the biggest mohawk <laughs> that she's ever had. <laughs> you're just like, yes, I'm so excited.
1: Nice. Yeah, it is. It's weird when in that like final act when she becomes Rooney Mara for a minute because she's putting on the, like right. the disguise and it's like, Oh wait, Rooney Mara is in this movie. Yeah.
3: <laughs> um, I, I love that sequence though. I, I, It's just so much fun watching somebody put on disguise and like, you know, just stomp around confidently and like trick bankers <laughs> it's just, it's just, I, with, with like, you know, that music, like it's just so much fun.
1: <laughs> right. Becoming a billionaires from
3: poverty and
1: yeah, there's yeah all that stuff. Um, awesome. Okay, cool. Well, uh, so why don't we say what else we've been watching recently? Tricia, what have you been watching recently?
2: Sure. So I finally watched The Fablemans, um, which I'm sure you know all about, but it's Steven Spielberg's new movie, um, uh, which is, I think what I had read was that it was semi-autobiographical. Um, it is quite autobiographical, but... <laughs> um, about his own life. It is a fiction, you know, it's a movie, uh, but it's a lot of real stories taken straight out of his life, and it's about young Sammy Fableman growing up in Arizona, and he's, you know, in the 1960s, and he's obsessed with making movies, and he wants to become a movie director, and it's about his family and sort of what he goes through on his journey toward becoming a director. Um, It really is just a family drama, though, in a lot of ways. Uh, I happen to know a lot about Steven Spielberg's life just because he's one of my favorite directors. And so the, the plot points necessarily didn't surprise me, but the way that they're put together and conveyed, I think, is really beautifully done. And there's a lot of interesting conflict in the family that you might not expect from, like... A shiny, this is the love letter to movies, the magic of cinema. It's it's not that. It's very much like a coming of age
0: story. It's more about the family than about it's his It's
2: much more cinema. about the family. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And Paul Dano and Michelle Williams play the parents in the movie. They're both excellent. And uh, yeah, it's very, very interesting. They recreated Steven Spielberg's actual childhood home. From photos and from his memory so like most of the set of it is like exactly the house that he grew up in. there's so much of it that he just didn't bother fictionalizing in so many ways and then some of the rest of it is is truly fiction it's it's just an interesting example of a filmmaker who we think of as an auteur who didn't write most of the movies that he's famous for um he co-wrote this screenplay and decided to tell his own story. Um, And I'm not going to say it's my favorite movie of his, but it's very good. And he knows what he's doing still. And it's kind of cool that this is a movie that he, one of the 50 movies that he's going to leave us with um, about the lens that he looks at the world through. So um, yeah, really interesting. The Fablemans, I'm sure you'll hear a lot more about it during well, just, award just season
3: best picture drama right at the uh
0: Golden <laughs> oh, yeah oh, i board. was
2: like yes yeah. <laughs> in future yeah at the oscars <laughs> yeah um no yeah it did just win a Golden globe
0: the fablemans has a character slash actor cameo at the end that made me made my heart sing with joy uh when i saw it in theater so stay tuned for that when you see the movie interesting
1: okay and paul dano we just talked about him in the Little Miss Sunshine episode available on we Patreon. Yeah, we yes. got, probably got
2: into his career. Probably.
1: Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Okay.
3: Alex, what about you? So I watched uh, The Wonder on Netflix, which is a movie, a Netflix movie uh, starring Florence Pugh. Uh, And I really enjoyed it. It's like it's a very moody, slow, contemplative period piece uh, set in 1862 in the Irish Midlands. Uh, Florence Pugh plays this, you know, basically like woman of science who is sent to investigate an apparent miracle in Ireland uh, with a young girl who is, you know, still alive, even though she has claimed not to have eaten for months. And it's just a really interesting, moody Psychological period piece about, like, you know, science versus religion and kind of skepticism versus faith. And, you know, it's Florence Pugh, like, being really great and a cool period piece. And it's really gorgeous and interesting. So, would I that... like it,
2: Alex? Because I was really interested
3: yes. in it. Yes, yes, okay. I think you would love it. Nice. Um, the one thing that was a little weird about it was that there's a kind of a pretentious framing device around the film um if you if you watched it um uh but once you like get past the framing device into the like meat of the story uh i, I really sank into the mood and very much enjoyed it nice
1: weirdly I feel like i saw that on Twitter so I think I, think I think Netflix
3: it. like posted the opening shot as like look at this movie or somebody or somebody did and yeah basically it's the beginning of the movie so I'll just say what it is essentially the the opening shot of the movie is like the back of the film set <laughs> and it's like
0: oh, okay. this
3: movie is a story all people like you know rely on stories to make sense of the world but it's basically is like state it's like stating theme in a really like clunky way up front it's like our town or something it's, yeah it, like felt, it felt very stage. like our town and then it like seamlessly like moves into another set and then the movie just like begins um but then it doesn't really break there's one moment where it kind of breaks the illusion for a second with like a person talking to camera but most of the movie is not that It is just in this world, and I enjoyed being in that world. And I think, Trisha, you'd really like it. Nice. Cool.
1: All right. Brian, what about you?
0: Uh, Well, speaking of Irish period pieces and speaking of movies that just won a Golden Globe, uh, I watched The Banshees of Inishirin. Um, the new Martin McDonough movie, uh, with Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson reteaming from *Imbruge*, which I is a movie that I really love. Um, and yeah, the plot is interesting. It's just Brendan Gleeson suddenly just stops wanting to be best friends with Colin Farrell, and Colin Farrell spends the whole movie trying to like figure out why and like mend their ways. Um, and thematically, the Irish Civil War is also happening. And the movie is not shy about drawing a very straight line between those two things. Like, it's just sort of like, Hey, those people over there are fighting and no one knows why. Right. Um, And that's obviously what's happening with the main two characters. Um, And yeah, it's an interesting watch. It's, it's beautifully shot. Um, You can tell Martin McDonough was a playwright first, just because the way some of the dialogue is, is written. Um, And it kind of gave me like, I mean, it reminded me of, Yorgos Lanthimos, not just because Colin Farrell and Barry Keegan were both in it, uh, but it sort of had that like lobster killing of a sacred deer vibe where it felt a little little off, a little kind of otherworldly. And it also gave me some almost Coen Brothers vibes where at the end I was like, I definitely didn't get everything that movie was trying to tell me, but I had a good time and I want to think about it some more and I probably want to watch it again someday. Um, so I'm sort of like... I'm sort of in that weird kind of like we were saying with Dragon Tattoo, right? Where I'm like, I had a good time watching it. I'm not sure how I feel about it just yet. Um but again, I'm sure we'll be hearing about it uh, as uh Oscar season approaches. Um I think by the time this episode comes out, nominations will have uh, They
2: will have just dropped. Been
0: released, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was going to say dropped and I was like that sounds weird to talk about Oscar nominations. <laughs> drop on tuesday baby (laughs) Um, we're in la (laughs) no yeah (laughs) um but yeah interesting movie i had a good time with it uh your mileage may vary depending on how you feel about martin mcdonough who is you know uh who he does his thing and he does his thing yep
1: nice cool okay yeah, uh, so I recently watched uh, a movie called uh, The Breakfast Club uh, which ah. is like, it's a 1985 uh, teen coming of age, directed by who's that? John Hughes uh, I, think I think it's, yeah, it's Hugg- about these,
0: Hugg- Huggis
1: Is it Huggis? I never know how yeah. to pronounce names, and it's about these five teenagers, you know, from different cliques in high school, and they have to spend a day in detention and, you know, it's a really interesting movie and I feel like maybe we should talk about it, because now that I've seen Ooh. it start to finish, I think there are things worth pulling apart. Uh, I' now seen
0: over three 80s movies. Wow. Yeah. This might be my
1: first John Hughes movie I've seen start to you finish. You have seen
3: 16 Candles?
1: No, I mean, I've seen at least 16 Candles in my life, but I have not seen the movie. Oh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Okay. I was going to so say Ferris works. Bueller's Day Off okay. you've
2: yeah. seen. Yeah,
1: yeah. I love it. Yeah.
2: Okay. So now you're a John Hughes fan.
1: I uh, <laughs> will get into everything in the next episode, uh, which we'll be talking about the Breakfast Club. So,
2: yay! If you
1: haven't seen it, rush out and see it. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a fun conversation. It's,
0: it's a
2: good Or movie. if you're normal, go watch it again.
0: Right? <laughs> go watch it for the seventeenth time.
1: <laughs> yes. Um, awesome. Okay. Well, so this has been our conversation about. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, so many things to talk about. I you were, I forgot who was talking just before we went into lessons, but it made me uh, you know, thinking about Elizabeth's character growth and just the ending of this movie does just like hit me every time and just like it's so sad. Like she has a friend and she feels yeah. something like she smiles, but like she there's all the stuff, and it's that heartbreaking thing where she sees Robin Wright and Dan Craig and lies and throws the thing. And then what honestly like breaks my heart the most is that the final shot, you know, she rides off into the distance, but we don't pull back. It's not like we're leaving this world behind. We push in and slowly follow her because there's more to the story.
2: I want the rest.
1: That we will never see.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And on that note. And on that note. So sorry. (sighs)
1: yes uh but thank you as always to the patrons that make this show possible thank you to our producer vince major thank you to our editors donovan bullen caleb berg graham Harther, and eric schneider i'm michael tucker and i've been joined today by trisha rand brian bittner and alex calleros so all of our twitter handles are in the show notes send us a tweet and say hi and we'll see you in the next episode
0: for the breakfast club bye everybody Bye-bye.
2: bye bye bye